I'd like to ask for your attention. We're on the last full day of our retreat. It seems opportune to say something about the fourth of the Satipatthanas, Dhammanupassana, Satipatthana, the many ways most detailed description of what consists, um, what this practice consists of. Um, those of you familiar with the teachings on Satipatthana may, may be aware that this is on a different level. While the first three Satipatthanas, body, feeling tone, and the mind state, uh, are given fairly straightforward um, this meditative advice, basically. Now, body is clear, it's about breath, it's about posture, it's about elements. It is about uh, the clear comprehension and going about using the body in activities other than formal practice. Um, plus the other two exercises I spoke of briefly, contemplation of the composite nature of the body, the organs and the charnel ground contemplations, and the latter of which are rarely used in meditation retreats for good reason. The second of the Satipatthanas is about the pleasant, the unpleasant and the neutral nature of uh, physical experience, the pleasant, the unpleasant, the sad and happy quality of neutral quality as well uh, of mental experience. So Vedana is also fairly straightforward. The acknowledgement of what takes place, the effect of what takes place. The third of the practices in the texts speak of investigating whether the mind is infected with greed, with desire, with wanting, with longing, uh, whether it is infected with hatred, with aversion, with uh, the powers that push back. Uh, we are asked whether the mind is collected or not. We are asked whether the mind is developed or not. We are asked whether the mind is confused or scattered, or whether it is concentrated and calm. We are asked if the mind is expansive or not, or if it is contracted. We are asked if the mind is um, surpassable or if it is insurpassable. In other words, if it is has come to full maturation <coughs> or whether there is a notion in us that uh, this can still be more mature. Psychologically speaking, the work in this third of the Satipatthanas, the Chitta, Chitta Nupassana domain is probably the most powerful work. It is the work where we have the task of purification, the task of stilling, the task of understanding, the task of releasing. Um, all this happens in the third Satipatthana. Necessary prerequisite is a clarity about the first two Satipatthanas and the capacity to keep being able to ground the mind's attentional focus in bodily sensation because body is the only guarantor that we are actually dealing with present stuff. Yeah. Anything to do with emotion and mind can be fantasy, can be based on past, can be based on future, can be based on sheer uh, imagination. Yeah. 
that only when we deal with body sensations, as unspectacular as many of them may be, we are actually having a guarantee that we're dealing with present tense phenomena. Because you never get yesterday's knee pain, you never get tomorrow's aches. You always, when you get aches, they're always of today. So in some direct way, your somatic connection is the guarantor that you are dealing with truly non-fictional, non-memorized present experience. Because I cannot control your past, I cannot control your future, you cannot control your past, you cannot control your future. So, if our past holds bad stuff, if our future is particularly anxiety-ridden, there's very little we can actually do about this right now. But what we can do something about right now is by acknowledging what it is that we experience right now. We come back <coughs> into the present. Now, I'm not speaking of some kind of golden now that if you can live and move in there, nothing bad is ever going to happen. That's one of the, um, you know, slightly embarrassing uh, contemporary notions of going, uh, in, uh, happening in meditators' minds, just kind of live in the perpetual now, basically, stay in my surf at the crest of the wave. And if I kind of move in there, you know, Everything is going to be fine. <coughs> Which is a joke. The now can be hor- horrific. You know? Just to be clear about it. <coughs> Staying in the now doesn't mean you feel good about it. Some of the nows you can experience are pretty challenging. Also, there is no such thing as a pure now. You can go and live like paradise. You know? Up there with Peter Pan and the rest. You know, this, is, this is an idea meditators have in their mind to feel safe. It's like thinking of Amitabha Buddha. It's like thinking of going to the Lord or kind of live up there. The now is constructed. The now is constructed of sensory experience, of your perceptual apparatus, of how your mind and how your brain and how your body have learned to experience things. And every now you experience has echoes of your past. The term that actually Buddhist teachings are using is not now. It's called Pachubana Dhamma, which means that which is presently arisen. And whatever is presently arisen is our entryway into understanding and freeing ourselves. Now what is presently arisen sits or stands or rests on preconditions that have something to do with your past, that have something to do with your perceptual apparatus now. So every now, in scare quotes, consists of a whole range of things that have to do with past, that have to do with developmental uh, issues in your uh, mind, in your nervous system, in your body, in your emotional capacity. And it has something to do with stuff that actually takes place now. There's a world out there. This is not illusion. It's happening. It's impermanent. It's never going to make you happy. It's never going to be yours. And it's arising on the basis of condition, but it's happening. It's, it's not a figment of fantasy. It's not an illusion. It's not a dream. It's real. Really sweet, really changing, really not yours, and really there to be understood. And if you understand, then we can transform. So, arising things in the mind 
right now, in the body right now, in our heart right now, in our feeling tone right now, is what we can know. And this knowledge is called waking up to the way things are. So the third, of the, the fourth of the Satipatthanas um, has a list of things that we are called upon to study. The translation of the fourth Satipatthana, Dhamma, is notoriously tricky. Some people translate it as states, yeah, so content of mind, that is definitely what I would favor. Um, some people think that what uh, the Sutta lists are the exclusive things we should investigate. Um, and the list of these things are what? They are. We have many recensions of the Satipatthana Sutta, six to be precise, three alone in Pali. Uh, we have the Abhidhamma versions, the Chinese, Sanskrit version. So, and interestingly, they pretty much overlap with each other in many, in the three first Satipatthanas. In the fourth Satipatthana, they disagree quite a bit. So, what is in that fourth Satipatthana actually to be investigated? All of the recensions of the Satipatthana agree on two points only. Namely, the first point is the hindrances, which I have spoken of a few days ago. This is the meditation hindrances, the nivaranas, the five things that are obstructive to meditation practice, the collectiveness of mind, and the bojangas, the awakening factors. These two occur in all of the recensions we know of. The Pali version has uh, a number of other things, uh, very plausible uh, sequence of things to be investigated. There is the ayatanas, the sense spheres. In other words, the five external senses and the mind sense as a base of experience. These are the six inner sense spheres. The outer sense spheres are the actual objects we experience in those senses. In other words, we also have eyes, ears, nose, tongue, uh, and tactile sensations. So we have individual impressions. So we have visual sights, we have audible sounds, we have tactibles, you know, things that can touch us. We have um, the experience of taste, not just the tongue, but actually the object of the tongue is the taste. Or we have olfactory objects, smells, odors, perfumes. And for the mind, the respective object is thought, it is image, it is concept. So how are we to practice this? I use these things as questions. You kind of <coughs> go back to that litmus paper image where you uh, have a sort of litmus paper and dip it into the mind and you say, okay, how much awakening factors are going? How much investigation of states? How much sati? How much piti? How much stillness? How much... Uh, upeka, how much samadhi is right now happening? Yeah? How much energy? Sorry, forgot that one. How much energy right now is going on? So you kind of put your litmus paper in and you kind of figure out, oh, okay, very little sati, not much investigation, Oof, forget energy, you know, no energy, right off, piti, 
get about stillness, you know, no chance for samadhi, uh, <laughs> goodbye to Upeka, yeah, something like that. <laughs> so this is a bad, this is a bad day, yeah, we need to do something. You kind of establish an acknowledgement how many of these factors are operating, operative right now in your mind. You, you learn, this is part of what I would call orientation. You learn to find out what you actually bring to this particular situation. In other words, what has presently arisen you know, in this mind. Upon your, such, uh, your inquiry, you will take different steps. If you find that your sati is present, you may decide to do something specific. You may decide that now it is the time to still your mind further, and then you will emphasize the equanimity aspect, or you will emphasize the stillness aspect. Or you may decide that your mind is sluggish, and you will try to emphasize the investigation aspect. You will try to emphasize the energy aspect. I wanted to read you a little snippet, which I think is a piece of terse and very practical advice. Well, it's coming from the Bojanga Samyutta, the uh, section in the great book on the um, awakening factors. Yeah? And it very practically says, well, these awakening factors, they come into play depending on conditions. Now, not just do they arise kind of of their own accord on conditions, but actually you can apply them depending on conditions. So, um, on an occasion, bhikkhus, these are monks, when the mind becomes sluggish, it is untimely to develop the awakening factor of tranquility, the awakening factor of concentration, the awakening factor of equanimity. For what reason? Because the mind is sluggish, monks, it is difficult to arouse it with those things. Suppose, monks, a man wants to make a small fire flare up. If he throws wet grass, wet cow dung, and wet timber into it, sprays it with water and scatters soil over it, would he be able to make that small fire flare up? (laughs) No, venerable sir. So, too, monks, on the occasion when the mind becomes sluggish, it is untimely to develop the awakening factor of tranquility, of concentration and of equanimity. For what reason? Because the mind is sluggish and it is difficult to arouse it with those things. So, the opposite, you know, what is timely? When the mind becomes sluggish, it is timely to develop the awakening factor of discernment of states, yeah, Dhammavijaya, that's the investigation bit, yeah. It is timely to arouse the awakening factor of energy and the awakening factor of rapture, For what reason? The mind is sluggish because it is easy to arouse it with those things. Suppose, monks, a man was to make a small fire flare up if he throws dry grass, dry cow dung and dry timber into it, blows on it and does not scatter soil over it, would he be able to make that small fire flare up? Yes. Yes, sir. So too, and so forth. So this is fairly straightforward. Acknowledgement what goes on in your mind, what the climate and what the energy level of your mind is, is decisive in your capacity to actually address this. If you just go into a sort of uh, non-judgmentally mindful mode, you may just dare uh, sit there and uh, wait till things kind of blow over, till you blow in your face. Yeah? You, may, you may wait there till your sluggishness goes away, and instead of doing something about it, you just 
feel victimized by it, you hope it would lift off, and <clears throat> you just sit there, lethargic and sluggish and un, without tools. So awakening factors are partly tools and partly results of tools. It's quite difficult to say. It's not really a, a real to-do list because um, you can't really do samadhi. You can't really do upeka. You can practice patience. You can practice being with your impulses. But generally, upeka is difficult as a practice. Or it's one of these practices that's like patience. You can only learn it by doing it. Yeah. It's not a kind of trick, and then you get it. It is something you have already... Uh, you have to, in some way, embody it for this to, become to, for this to come to fruition. But let me read the rest. The excited mind, what is untimely? On an occasion, monks, when the mind becomes excited, it is untimely to develop the awakening factor of discrimination of states, the awakening factor of energy, and the awakening factor of rapture. For what reason? Because the mind is excited, monks, and it is difficult to calm it down with those things. Suppose, monks, a man wants to extinguish a great bonfire, if he throws dry grass, dry cow dung, and dry timber into it, blows on it, and does not scatter soil of it, would he be able to extinguish that great bonfire? No, venerable sir. <laughs> so, too, on the occasion when the mind becomes excited, it is untimely to develop the awakening factor of discrimination of states, the awakening factor of energy, and the awakening factor of rapture. Yeah? So these are three which are not useful when you're already excited. You don't want to investigate. You don't want to jive it up. And you don't need to have more energy going into your system. The timely things. When the mind is excited, it is timely to develop the awakening factor of tranquility, the awakening factor of concentration, and the awakening factor of equanimity. For what reason? Because the mind is excited, and it is easy to calm it down with those things. I think this is obvious. So too, because on that occasion, when the mind becomes excited, it is time to develop the enlightenment factor of tranquility, the awakening factor of concentration, the awakening factor of equanimity. But mindfulness, because I say, is always useful. So, we have one of the awakening factors, yeah, one of the seven, namely the, uh, the first. Sati is always useful. While the other six here are listed sometimes timely and sometimes untimely. So I think it is a good and useful thing to identify these factors. How does it feel when I feel awake? When I feel alive with mindfulness? How does it feel when there is energy? How does it feel when there is no energy? Do I know this? Do I recognize this? Do I know the feeling in my mind when there is energy, when there is no energy? Do I know the feeling in my body when there is energy, when there is no energy? Piti is an interesting term. It doesn't quite... Um, it's not an easy definition. Piti, here translated as rapture, <coughs> sometimes translated as um, delight, sometimes translated as uh, zeal, um, has many, many flavors. And it manifests quite differently for um, different people. For some people, its most simplest and most obvious form is, uh, <coughs> is when your interest does not take work anymore. When it's 
easy for the mind to stay with something. When something when your mind easily gravitates towards this and does not find it effortless to associate with a task, with a thought, with a practice. So it seems you are given energy. That is its most maybe um, everyday appearance. Some forms of PT are more dramatic. Generally there's a somatic component to it, usually connected with the feeling of greater relaxation, uh, greater malleability in your body, sort of a softening of your tissues and your muscle tone. And um, that can build up really into an energetic experience of being kind of being full of beings. Feeling a kind of roaring energy somewhere in your spine rising up. It doesn't take effort to sit here anymore. It is as if your breath holds you upright and you feel really a kind of stream, a deep flow of a benevolent energy that flows through you and that gives you strength. Sometimes this is um, a slightly frightening component. You you have a feeling you may you know you, you may flip your lid or. You know, your head is going to take off, or you feel uh, this accompanied by tingling. Um, People have all kinds of experiences around this, not all of them entirely pleasant. If you get such experience, don't be freaked. Try to find somebody to talk to who knows about this. If you don't get such experience, don't be freaked either. Maybe you have this, but it doesn't manifest in dramatic ways. But generally, it's mental component is one of a, a greater ease in being interested and in feeling uh, an energy that focuses easy on a chosen task, on a chosen topic, on a chosen practice. Yeah. Generally there's something slightly disquiet about it or slightly bubbly, so slightly unruly maybe even. Uh, often this is very pleasant, um, has this sort of um, yeah bubbly is probably the world. Um, quality to it and after a while this will still this will kind of when contained this will become more still become a more profound (coughs) quality of stillness which the suttas refer to as pasadi as the stillness that precedes samadhi that precedes genuine calm so I think this is an interesting thing to investigate after a while when you keep sitting down and you just take stock how much of this is going on how much sati is in the body how do you know how much sati there is? Genuine question. I want answers. How do you know you're mindful? Tell me, is this a feeling? Is this a mind state? Do you have a somatic quality to it? What would be telltale signs that you're mindful? I mean it. <laughs> <laughs> Details. Details? Okay. Details. Details. Mm-hmm. I feel my whole body. You feel? The whole body. Feeling the whole body? The whole okay. Body. Very energetic, yeah. in a very energetic way. Good. Other voices? Well, just an ability to identify. Ability to identify what's happening? Or? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Other voices? To be aware of the mind rather than just be in it. Okay, capacity to be aware of something without being part of it. Yeah. Sense of spaciousness. Sense of spaciousness. More. I know that I'm mindful. I know that I'm mindful. Okay, self-awareness. 
there was something there? Sense of flow. Sense of flow? Within? No, just moving on, things passing, changing. Okay, so an awareness of a sense of flow in your sensory field. Yeah. Other voices? Totally there, so sense of presence. Yeah. Mm. It's easier, it's not as much of a struggle to meditate. Okay, a greater ease in actually med in the exercise. But this is all good stuff, keep it coming. I can see thoughts arising without um, getting pulled into them. Okay, capacity to be aware of something and being able to resist the pull. And sensing the space around him, yeah, great stuff. Good. Opposite. How do you know you're not? <laughs> Getting involved? Lost in babble. Lost in babble. Well, I think you don't know when you're not, you know, <laughs> by definition, you realize that you haven't been. Complete heedless immersion in <laughs> Papancha. <laughs> okay, but there are some indications, isn't it? There's a dawning of awareness, what's happening. What are these indications? Tense body or not feeling the body. Okay, tense body, tightness or absence of signs of body's experience. Yeah? What else? Think. You've been there, I bet. <laughs> Okay, some of your actions would reflect heedlessness or lack of mindfulness. So, you mean you would be bumping into furniture, you would be making more mess than is necessary, you would. This kind of thing, is that what you mean? Or you would be. Mindfully or physically. Okay, okay. Preoccupation. Preoccupation, okay. With. With, with anything. With anything. <laughs> Probably not helpful. <laughs> yeah. How? What else? Being with the breath, but um, being really dozy. Okay. Apparently being with a task, but being kind of dozy about it. Yeah. Being in your mind with more stories, being your thoughts. Uh huh. Okay. The. Feeding the mind with more narrative stuff, yeah. Being on autopilot. Okay, kind of just operating on, on yeah, autopilot is great. Yeah, good stuff, more? Well, sometimes I can see the mind drifting off from mindfulness into not mindfulness, but I can't do anything about it. And, but how do you notice, that's the bit, how do you notice this is mindfulness and this is not? Does it increase in speed? Do you get more engrossed in emotions? I just can feel that something is taking over. Like okay. I, was in, I could see the breast, but then just kind okay. of flying away. Okay, flying away or being co-opted by things. Okay, good. There was another one over there. That was it? Lack of interest, maybe. Aha, uh-huh. okay. Lack of interest. 
dwelling in the future or the past. Good, yeah. Ruminations of the future or of the past. Great. Thank you. That was useful. The more you know of this, uh, the better you're prepared. Yeah? So, one of the tasks, I think, of the fourth Satipatthana is to be able to assess what's going on. A simple way to assess the degree of mindfulness that you have available is to ask this mindfulness to go into the body and tell you what's happening there. If that mindfulness comes back with a fairly um, sophisticated and fairly variegated answers how the body feels or what the body feels, chances are that your mindfulness is, is there. Yeah? That you have some mindfulness available. If your mindfulness comes back with some kind of one or two crummy sensations, says nothing really happens here, everything is normal, stop asking me difficult things, then you know it's probably not there. Yeah? It's very difficult to assess mindfulness directly. So the way we can assess how much mindfulness is available is what mindfulness actually reports. If we direct it somewhere, if we uh, place it somewhere, the differentiated nature of the answer or the undifferentiated nature of the answer tells us something about the availability of mindfulness. Yeah. So the more, the more texture, the more detail, the more... Um, difference and variance you get from an area back, reported back to the mind is, is indicative of the quality of your uh, mindfulness. So be, be aware if nothing seems to be happening. If, if uh, the reports when you place your attention onto something are always the same. There's something fishy about this. You know things change, bodies change, minds change, volition changes, senses change. You know that. So if things apparently seem to continue being the same, there's something very fishy. Yeah? So you need to go there and see. You need to look more closely. If you're bored, it generally means you're not paying attention. It means you have expectation for something to come here, but then it comes only here. Yeah? So you need to lower your threshold. As soon as you're willing to lower your threshold, suddenly something seems to be happening. That's one of the side effects of mindfulness practice. If you've learned to attend to something as undramatic as an in-breath and an out-breath, much of your life will become more fascinating because you're willing to actually be there and because you're there, you will notice difference. You'll notice variation. You'll notice subtlety. You'll notice texture and conscious where, you, where it was just grey before. So that's why people appreciate mindfulness to heighten uh, the even enjoyment of all aspects of their life. You know, their, their appreciation of many different aspects, which they've never part have never been part of their meditative practice. But they listen better. They see more appreciatively. They feel. You know, they're less reactive, and their connecting capacities increases. Yeah? That's why your partners generally like it if you meditate. So consider this to be part of the fourth of the Satipatthanas. This is not something that fits into necessarily a four 
a, a formal meditation setting, but it is a capacity to both informal meditation to inquire into the availability of qualities that foster awakening, as in the case of the awakening factors, or qualities that hinder the awakening, as in the case of the hindrances. So the litmus little the little litmus exercise applies not just to the qualities that help the mind to wake up, but it also applies to the qualities that hinder the mind. So you put the thermometer in, or you put the litmus paper in, you say, okay, this is how much chanda raga, so much desire is going, so much aversion is going, so much sleepiness is going, so much restlessness is going, so much agitation is going, and the rest is finished off by doubt. (laughs) You get the feel for your own situation, and having that feel gives you a chance to actually say, you're sleepy and doubtful, so you need more you need more energy. You need more energy to actually be here. That means not more refinement at the tip of your nose, but more say feeling your belly, more embodiment so that you can sit and feel the feelings of the sensations of sleepiness more clearly. You can get samadhi on the basis of feeling the sensations of sleepiness. Believe me. After a while, this starts to vitalize your system. With the vitalization of your system, you have a better chance to understand doubt or to understand the things that need understanding in your life. I guess my plea is use these forms of orienting and use these um, possibilities to shift the emphasis in your practice rather than just wait till it stops bemoan the fact that you've been meditating for 20 years and still, you know, this sleepiness hasn't lifted or still this uh, restlessness hasn't gone. We can do much more than we uh, generally acknowledge. It's not our weakness that really freaks us. It's our power that really freaks us because if we, if we have power, suddenly we can become responsible. We have to own up that we actually can do something, that we can change ourselves, this world. So sometimes this is much more frightening to acknowledge one's own strength, one's own resources and one's own power than um, then, uh, the weakness might frighten us. Both are bad. The, power, the, the, the fear of, of one's own power uh, and the fear of one's own helplessness, both are bad. But sometimes the fear of one's helplessness has more acknowledgement and the fear of one's own power seems to have less acknowledgement sort of in our societies. So be, use your powers, use your wits. You've learned tricks. You've lived so long. You know something about your mind, your body. Use that knowledge. That is what the force of the Satipatthanas are saying. And particularly, study the things that hinder. It's not embarrassing to have hindrances. It's embarrassing to have hindrances, know something about them, and not do anything about it. That is embarrassing. And study also the things that help. Sometimes we are so problem-centered and problem-focused in our biographies, in our ways of approaching things. Our societies are highly problem-centered. So find out what makes for awakening, what makes for energy, what makes for contentment makes for stillness in, in your life, in your practice. Learn to identify this. Now, I try to say a few things here. I give you some quotes, but this is not all of it. There may be things I have not mentioned and that are still useful. 
They may not be even. They may not even be canonical, and they still be useful. Yeah. So, I spoke about a couple of ways to deal with thought yesterday. The list is not comprehensive. Yeah, there are many other ways of dealing with thought. Uh, this is just this particular teaching that the Buddha has given. He has given other teachings on dealing with thought. The most famous one is called Anapanasati. You know, mindfulness of breathing is the kingly road to still discursive thought. But there may be other tools. Any tool that helps your mind to grow in any of these ways is legitimate. Human beings in the time of the Buddha had different psychological build-ups. They had different societies. They had different hang-ups and different strengths. Um, it may be the case that we need a lot more self-love in our time. It may be the case that our big challenges um, has to do with isolation. It has to do with competitiveness in our minds. It has to do with the price we pay for individualism. The advantages of individualism is independence, uh, more resilience against peer group pressure, uh, being able to say no when we mean no, even though everybody says yes. This is a power. Yeah? But sometimes we've become so individual that we can't live with anybody anymore. Yeah? We've become so darn individual that we, we, can, uh, we can't <coughs> handle other people anymore. Yeah? So there is a price we pay for that strength. And maybe our time <coughs> needs more self-love, needs more self-compassion, needs more capacity to attend in a loving way, even to the bits in ourselves which we don't like. Our ugly thoughts, our judgmental patterns, our uh, aging bodies, our uh, needs which we don't like ourselves for because they make us dependent and feel weak. Uh, all the bits we don't like about ourselves need to in some way be touched. And maybe our time, more than other times, seems, I, this is a suspicion, I can't prove it. Uh, every time speaks of itself as being a bad time, if you look back through history and how people have witnessed their own time. But maybe this time needs more, more care. And that may have an impact on the things that help you in your practice. So consider to assess what is here, what you bring into this, when you practice, when you sit down. Consider what is needed and see whether some of the things you know that help, whether you can bring them in. Good, let me stop, let, me, let us practice.